Welcome. To Arcade Audio. Welcome to this week's episode of Married with Movies. I'm one of your hosts, Samantha Mullet. See next to me on the couch is your other host, my beautiful husband, Chris Mullet. <sighs> yeah, that about sums it up. That, 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 that good? That. That's been all for this week's episode. <laughs> and print. <laughs> I'd also mean? like to add that you're just sitting over here. Your chest hanging out. I have no shirt on. No shirt on. I have no underwear on. <laughs> Chris, you don't... I don't care. I don't care. Man, people aren't going to want to come to our if house. If you listen to this, know that I'm sitting here with nothing on my body because a pair of fucking basketball shorts. My balls are just free in the wind because they hurt. Okay? Because of sweat. If you're new here... This is what you're getting into. I sat on the couch. I don't care. Don't sit on the fucking <laughs> I couch. I didn't. The thing was sealed. The thing was sealed. It's fine. If you're new here, we are married and we watch movies and we talk about them. We also talk about our lives. And our lives right now are that dog in the room and fu- covered in fire. No, it's just, it's just been a week, man. It's just been a week. We say that every week, I think. Every week is a week until the next week is more week. Ah, homophone. Wake up, Jillian. Um, <laughs> no, don't. She just wants to sleep. Please yeah. do not wake her up. Um, it's November 7th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that about sums everything up. Yep, it's actually September 7th. Um, it's one of the embers. It's Ember Moon the seventh. <laughs> um, since we last recorded, a few months have gone by. Apparently, apparently, uh, we went to Disney on Ice. We you're so unenthused about everything, huh? What? Then we went to Disney on Ice. It was fun. It was fine. Um, Jillian had a blast. Is all that matters. Um. I can hear again. I can't remember if last week I was talking. No, I think that was no, far enough back. No, because we didn't record. Um, My ear was like impacted with more fucking wax than Madame Tussauds. It's gross. Uh, I had to go to urgent care twice. I went once. Well, three like, times technically. Don't get me started. Uh, twice that they saw me to finally clear it today. And it was like the Wizard of Oz where like everything went from like black and white to color but with sound. Did you turn that light off? Yes. Don't do that to me when I'm in the middle of talking about my stressful week. Sorry. Good Lord. And I'm thinking the sounds of the lights are going off. I'm talking, literally talking about going from black and white to color and you turn the light off. You cruel, evil wench. I think I've got great timing. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's been a pain in the butt. It's no, putting, I'm turning off the light, though. It's... Okay, it's fine. Putting drops in my ears every fucking yeah, night. Yeah, it's been a real ball for me, I'll tell you. You're not the one that's to fucking feel it. I got it. I have to hear about it, though. Uh-huh. I got to hear about it. Oh, I can't hear about anything. 
Yeah. Except apparently. now I can. And I come home and you're like loud as hell. You and Jillian are like yelling. I'm like, wait, just because my ears fixed doesn't I mean you guys have to fucking well, shout like fucking. That's how we were, so you could hear us though the past like week. Yeah. So we're just used to it. Um. So that's been going on. Uh, work is just work. Our roof's about to get re- get replaced. Everything in the house is the falling apart. I'm working out, not eating. Uh, yeah, so I think I had another kidney stone the other day. This has been a ball for me. You just keep rattling off you've things been, that are well, you've fun been for sick. me. I've been sick. I'm always sick. That's my. I'm like the Hulk. I'm always sick. except fucking depressing and not at a hundred percent. Yeah, that's great. It's great that's to live depressing. with. It's great to be around. Being I am, always sick. Being always sick is a buckle, a bucket of chuckles. I'll digress. Uh huh. As I talk about my ear and my kidneys and my yeah. dick. Uh huh. We're just a great pair. So in the middle of all this, we were managed to watch a movie. We haven't watched anything else. There's not much else to do. Um, hopefully, I say this. Hopefully, things will calm down in the next week. As you notice. We're not tackling the third part of the Fast Saga because we haven't had time to watch three movies. We've barely had time to watch this one. Um, and we're recording, again, the day before this airs, which is going to be a trend that we buck, I swear to God. It has to be next week because you're Doubtful. going to Miami. I am. So we'll be, hopefully For the Jewish be, New Year. Yep. Great time to do it in the middle of September. Um, allegedly. Uh, Chris. <laughs> don't be an asshole. I'm not. Yeah, you are. <laughs> Not on purpose. I just don't know. Um, you know more than you like to let on. Hmm? I don't listen. Yeah, I'm aware. So yeah, so that, that catches us up, I think, right? Sure. I don't really listen to this podcast, so... Oh, oh no, I pulled a muscle in my <laughs> back and my chest sneezing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's been all for this week's episode of Married with Ailments. Oh, man. More like ailments. Ailments is the perfect fucking synonym for marriage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in life. Sure. Um, Hopefully, in the next couple weeks, we'll finally be able to go out to the theater. I think I said last week or the week before we were going to talk about our movie draft. Yeah, we're still not going to do that. Wait until it really gets underway. So far, only the Equalizer 3 has come out. But, um... Hopefully be back in the theater to see some things soon, and we will talk about it then. But until then, want to get into it? Sure. Uh, this is from our uh, Can't Pick or our Pick 'em Off series. Uh, we, it's been nominated before. It didn't get picked. It goes into a big bowl. Not a bowl. We don't. I mean, we're we're digital. A now. metaphorical bowl. Oh. And it gets snatched out. Uh, we won't be drawing one at the end of this episode because we technically already did. For Halloween season. For Halloween. For spooky for, season. For Psycho. So we moved it to October, and we did this one in in lieu of not having anything for unspooky season. Uh, we did Reservoir Dogs. It's your turn to read the box? It is. Very good. Uh, there's nothing on the front? Nope. You're good. There is not. Okay. This is the things they don't have to read right there. Mm-hmm. I like, though, how it says Pulp Factoids, though. Right that there. sucks. That's, I hate it. Well, I love it. Four perfect killers, one perfect crime. Doesn't seem to make sense. Critically acclaimed for its raw power and breathtaking ferocity, 
It's the brilliant American gangster movie classic from writer-director Quentin Tarantino. They were perfect strangers, assembled to pull off the perfect crime. Then their simple robbery explodes into a bloody ambush, and the ruthless killers realize one of them is a police informer. But which one? Now it says perfect strangers, now I just want to see fucking Bronson Pinchot and Margaret Baker in this movie. I mean, we would see Bronson Pinchot in a Quentin Tarantino written film shortly after this in True Romance, but... Yeah. Uh, that's it. Yeah, you're good. You're good. You're still behind like four. No, sure. Um, so if I'm not mistaken, the only Tarantino movies we have left to cover on the podcast, well, we actually more, as soon as I start saying it out loud, uh, there's been ten movies, quote unquote, because Kill Bill, he counts as one. Uh, so we've done Reservoir Dogs, we've done Pulp Fiction, we have not done Jackie Brown, nope. we've not done either Kill Bill's. We have done uh, Inglorious Bastards. We have done... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We have not done, done Hateful Eight. And we have not done Django Unchained. Right. So five to... Yeah, so five to... F- what am I missing? Am I missing something? Oh, and we did Death Proof. Yeah, we did Death Proof. We yeah. haven't done like... But I don't know if you count True Romance. Well, no, no. I'm talking about directed. So um, obviously Tarantino being my favorite filmmaker. Um, we're clipping away at that at a bigger pace uh like some other filmmakers like fincher and uh, yeah we did a lot of fincher um and and i think it's probably just like a kind of like the odds you know like the percentage of movies that we own well the, of we own two thousand yeah. movies like i made 10 you know yeah. it's not really <laughs> you know <laughs> but also like we've nominated them a lot sure. kind of thing you know um so. But this one's interesting because it's his first full-length feature film that he directed. Um, it's what put him on the map and set, you know, set the course for Pulp Fiction and everything to come as he is now this, like, you know, legendary auteur um, who's, who's about to wrap up his career with his next film. Let's not talk about it. Um, That'll be a sad day. And this one, to me, ranks on the lower end of... Like, it's a Tarantino Tarantino movie. So, of course, I I enjoy it. I think it's great. And it does an amazing job at establishing what the world and the style is. But I have always had a bit of a disconnect with this movie. Really? So, it was the... Third Tarantino movie I saw. I saw the first Tarantino movie I ever saw was Kill Bill, volume one. And then I saw, no, it'd be second. Then I saw this a couple times, but barely. Um, like putting it on and like kind of getting like lost with it, not getting it. And then watching Pulp Fiction and then going back and finally being like, okay, I get it. But I still, there's still the stretches of this movie that just like, I don't know. I just I just wander and meander. Um, really, it, it that's interesting. But it's still this like groundbreaking, revolutionary movie that I cannot help but still love because of the burgeoning brilliance you see in it. Like it feels like a lifetime ago. It. Does and then, honestly, I mean, it's, it's thirty a, years ago. But it's also supposed to. 
It's supposed to. But what I mean by that is it it feels unrefined to me for somebody who now is so particular in his words and in his message and in his style. I think that this movie still does a good job of conveying those things, but it is the infancy of those things. Yes. And so it, and it's just jarring to sure, see. Sure, but it's just like if you were to watch like early Fincher or early JJ Abrams movie, right? Like you only find your voice after you do it a couple times, right? Like it it, it obviously gets better and better, which is probably why as as he continues making movies like, you know, Pulp Fiction is obviously like your favorite it holds a different place, but then it's like, like in Glorious Bastards came out, and you're like, oh my god, that's amazing! How can he top it? Then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, and you're like, oh my god, how can he top it? Yeah. Like you know, it's just one of those things. Like as he continues to do it, his craft gets honed. But I think that this is still a really great representation, and if this is the baseline, so it's, it sets such a high bar. Sure. So I think you actually like this more than I do. I, I do. And yeah. it's funny because I the first time I ever saw this movie was with you. So really? I was not allowed to watch Quentin Tarantino movies ah. growing up. My mom's not a fan of Quentin Tarantino. Well, which is weird because Kill Bill is one of her favorite movies. No um, right. I know. It makes no sense. But, you know, I, I, I didn't. I wasn't really allowed to watch like gratuitous violence and, and all that kind of stuff. Um so I didn't really watch any of these movies until I met you. Um, You're welcome. No, hey, thank you. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I, I watched a different kind of of movie. You know, great movies and stuff. But um, yeah, I I like this movie. I think, especially for like the door to Tarantino and his world and these ensembles because. Oh yeah. You know, one of the trademarks is like a lot of these people are in all of his movies or, you know, some people say like there's the same character. Well, I mean, this you know, this one is maybe like, one of the most blatant and obvious for setting the tone for things in the future. It's absolutely. Been, it's been established. Mr. Blonde is Vic, Vic Vega, Vega, the brother of Vincent Vega. Uh-huh, a movie Pulp that Fiction. Tarantino said he was going to make for many, many years and now oh, it's impossible the because they both are craggly. I mean, Michael Madsen's craggly here, for crying out loud. <laughs> uh, Alabama, the the Patricia Arquette, Patricia Rosanna. It's Patricia. It's Patricia. Patricia Arquette character from True Romance uh-huh. is a former associate, uh, associate of uh, Harvey Keitel's character. Mr. White. Mr. White. Um, Could so, yeah, be so, Mr. Wool. No, no, it's not, because he's, he's dead well, yeah, in this movie. I, um, I, yes. Well, don't confuse the people. So, so that part has always been awesome and intriguing to me, and, and that that's fine. But what I more so meant is like, it's it's just jarring to go back and see the humble beginnings. Sure, because it is like in the very very first scene, like you have the the classic Tarantino Man. camera rotation going on the table, but like. It's janky, and there's edits and cuts in there. So right. Like, he doesn't really know like how he wants him and uh, Sally Mankey doesn't really have um, uh, a good process for that yet. They, they don't. There's they, dialogue they... almost like Robert Altman, like kind of stacked on top of one another, and everyone's kind of talking about a different thing. The volume's who the fuck a little is off. Toby. Like that's who I want. That's why I want to know. <laughs> 
So it's just, it, it's not... It's not perfected, but I think that it not being perfected, it's still, it's, it's still good. Oh. And, it, and it's so real. Like, and I think that's the thing, right? Like, this is audacious. The things that happen in this movie are audacious. I think we say that about a lot of Tarantino's movies, right? Like the rewrite of history, the gratuity, all of that kind of stuff. But it just cemented in such real, like in reality, like we've gone to breakfast with a group of us like that and done that same exact sure. thing. So, like, so you know what I mean? Like it establishes the, like you immediately get all the relationships, even though these people haven't, met each other before like you don't really know that in that opening scene sure and i think it does such a great job of like establishing that and then doing that rewind let's let's see how we got here oh the, the non-linear narrative yeah. structure that he is kind of the master of it and you know in this movie right. sets the groundwork i think it does set the groundwork really well real is a stretch i, I would instead say that it is i don't know what the phrase is better for it's not necessarily real. Well, it's authentic it's, to them. It's authentic in this in this reality. It's it's authentically more human because before this movie, you didn't really have characters talking about things that had no pertinence to the plot necessarily, but were pertinent to. Uh, fully flush out their characters yeah. and their relationships to one another. Yeah. I mean, Pulp Fiction, I think, does an infinitely better job than this movie does of well, doing that and, mean, and weaving it into stories and things you're going to see later on. But the opening scene of, you know, talking about, like, a virgin and talking about tipping and whatnot, like, it's, it, it's I mean, it's honest to goodness, like, legendary stuff because... It, it, it wasn't done before. Like Shooting the shit. Yeah, just... you don't have characters just kind of living their life in kind of the truth of themselves yeah. without it being... Foreshadowing. Integral or, or, right. or, yep. or formulaic to the exposition of the plot at yeah. hand. No, I, so so yeah. that, that I get you. And, but then you go from that into just the fucking... I in style of uh. Tarantino being able to express cool easier than I think any director ever has with just a simplistic slow motion walk of them in the parking lot and, and focus uh. on each person in their own right and invoking the style that he loves having, you know, basically being about halfway through cinema speculation, his second book, like, this being an homage almost to those movies that he grew up loving in the 60s and 70s that have this impeccable, just not to steal a, a fucking popular phrase among the kids today, this has some, just some fucking natural riz to it, you know? Like... I can't believe you just but said that. I, that's Please just, get out of here. That's just having a lack of any other word You're to, to say. You're off of the show. That's Rich's fault. Rich just said it, and that, uh, he's rubbing off on me. Um... But Gross. that that right there, like no matter what misgivings I may have about it, just not necessarily being as good or as clear as things he'll do later on. I mean, that stuff right there is the stuff that'll live forever because what he did there, 
he was able to add and expound upon for the rest of his life. And guess what? Dozens, if not hundreds of people did the exact exactly same that. thing yeah. because of him. And nobody has done it as good. Yeah. And that right there just goes to his pedigree. And then you get into just the meat and potatoes of the, of the movie and and the story itself. I don't know if this has ever been adapted for stage, but like this should be a fucking play if it hasn't already that been That would be really adapted. cool. It's hard because of some of the cutaways and the nonlinear stuff. Um, but just putting, you know, these people in this room, well, not necessarily immediately putting them in the room because you have that and then you just get this smash cut in the middle of the escape and Tim Roth writhing and yelling in the car covered in blood and you're just left with like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. And from there, from that moment in, like, you're in. Like, you're going to watch the rest of this movie even if you fucking hate what's going on because you have to know. You just have to understand and find out what is going on. And the fact that they're able to establish a relationship with one another so quickly because they don't converse, they don't have any sort of rapport with one another the opening scene. Um... It's just amazing how well you don't know why it's happening. You don't know, you know, what their relationship with their deal is, who they are, but you're engrossed with it of wanting them to get away, wanting them to survive, wanting to figure out what it is. And then you feel it, find out later, it's like, oh yeah, they're fucking criminals and they just killed people and this, that, and the Mm -hmm. other. It's, it's just wonderful writing. I mean... I will always think of Tarantino as a writer before a director, which is weird. Um, well, what do you what do you see him more as? What what do you prefer him as? I know it's not actor, uh, <laughs> which we'll probably get into later. But what, what what are you talking about? What do you prefer him as? If that makes sense, when you're watching a Tarantino movie, is it the words? Is it It's the whole vibe. It's the whole vibe. I think it's a combination of both. I think when you have a a person who can do both and do it well, it makes for magic. I I really do. Um, Yeah, I I like when he does the one-two punch. Writing, directing, punch. Yeah. Do you have a favorite scene in the movie um, or favorite part of the movie? I, I do I do really like that that opening. Um uh, I just really love the, the like iconic scenes, the use of, of music. Oh yeah, I mean um, that's another one that's the the classic Tarantino. You can I argue Scorsese did it first and a little better, but Tarantino I think is sure. But you much. can't beat like the opening of the torture scene when it's stuck in the middle and with the dancing and the music. I think that while I you can you can make an argument that without that scene, his career doesn't go off the way that it is. Like no, that I, scene in the moment it takes it to another level in a lot of different ways and it's even without showing really what happens until you get the after effects of it and there was a big there was a big debate and a big fight between fucking awful ass harvey weinstein and the studio and tarantino about that scene in general and how it wasn't testing well and tarantino was like no it's not supposed to test well it's Mm -hmm. it's supposed 
to make you uncomfortable. And that's what's going to, you know, put you further into this seedy world by having it there. Yeah, that that whole sequence, I mean, if you're going to make a top five, top ten of his career, it's still there. I mean, it, it, it has to be. I mean, it's just... Yeah, I mean, and, and it's iconic, and it's like, the, that's the kind of thing you look like in Pulp Fiction. You have that a couple times with different things, you know, like that, you know, build up, the use of music. Yeah. Um, so so I think that's a great scene, I think. I always forget also that the, are you going to bark all day, little doggy, you're going to bite, is not part of that scene. Yeah. It's it's part of the earlier kind of confrontation that he has with White. I always forget that. Yeah. Not part of that scene. I love that line, though. I, um, yeah, it's just, that scene is just, it's so calm, and then it's so awful at the same time, and it's just, like, you. it's so hard to pull that off. Um, I love the, and the, and then I just love the part where, like, he does what he does, then he walks outside and it's silent. Oh, you hear giggling. He goes to the car. Following whatever. in real time. Comes, coming back. Comes yeah. back in. Then it's like engulfed in the music again. It's just beautiful. And I think that that's like so gross to say that about the scene. Like from yeah. like a content perspective. But I mean it's just really well done. It's so well executed. Um, and um, so, so I like that. The visuals in the scenes I really love. I you know especially like the build up, right after that torture scene when you see Tim Roth's character and you see like how red that fucking shirt is. Oh yeah, it's, it's so bright and vibrant, and it's just it's the old classic wrestling philosophy. I mean, you see a guy walking into a match wearing white, and it's supposed to be like a street fight or a brawl. Yeah. Like, oh, this guy's gonna bleed because yeah. it's gonna accentuate. But it's just like insane. That's probably. 30 years later, my biggest complaint about the movie is it's, to me, and they try to address it via dialogue earlier on the movie, and I just, like, roll my eyes at it still, they ain't no fucking way he's losing that much blood and is still alive. Yeah. It's just, it, it's a suspension of disbelief I've never been able to jump over. Um, it, it's, it's just, it can't, especially when... Tarantino, Mr. Mr. Brown, has, like, whatever he has on his face. A gunshot wound. Yeah, but he's he's fucking driving and talking, and he's fine. People do that. People it's, get shot in the head. I never liked the juxtaposition of him anticlimactically dying, and Tim Roth overclimactically <laughs> surviving, if that makes sense. Um... So that's just, I, when you mentioned I had to point out. But the reveal is great. I mean, when, you know, he's... What a great swerve. Let's give me the number. Only 89. Okay. Only 89 swerves in the movie. That's fair. Uh, but yeah, I, so, so there's a lot of things that I, I love about it. I just really love the ensemble and... I could tell you more stuff I love about it, but we'd have to get into the acting. Right. Um, I, I, the other main scene that I wanted to, to mention that I absolutely love, and there's other little ones that I think are good throughout, but, I mean, the the ending, the, the standoff at the end and the result of it all is just so perfect and tragic and deserved, at, at, you know, at the end of the day. 
everyone kind of gets what's coming to them. There's no winners here. Uh, but I just love the tension behind it, and I love the ultimate reveal of, you know, Mr. Orange telling Mr. White what everyone knew at this point mm. except for him. I'm a cop. Yeah. I'm a cop. And, and Mr. White's just, he just fucking... He's a breakdown. Got a breakdown, and the cop's running uh, in. It's, it's, it's just... It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um... What the fuck? So we talk about Tarantino music, so there's plenty of good music in this movie. So you have Blue Swede earlier on in the movie, which, you know, of course, is always now connected to both Guardians and Ally McBeal, but this kind of did it before either one of those. Right. Um, and, you know, the the re- reoccurring K-Billy, you know, uh, music marathon that's going on, you know, playing the hits of that day. Uh, but the w- other thing I've just never understood, I'm like, what the fuck? Why does the... Final song <laughs> over the credits. The it's the the lime and the coconut song, right? Oh yeah. Why? I don't know. <laughs> it's so. Why it's not? So fucking random. Um. So things. Uh, what do you not like about the movie? Without getting the performances, we're going to get to here in a few sure. minutes. Um. Any particular scenes? Well, or I mean, uh, you know, while I said all that great stuff about like the torture scene. I also don't like <laughs> yeah. from from a you know gratuitous violent sort of way. Um, I think some of the character establishments, like you know the the nonlinear storylines, like some of the character establishments, I think could have been tightened a little yeah, bit. That's my biggest um, one. We spend way too many times on to me a lot of unnecessarily long diversions. Yeah, and it's not like, it's not done in the same way like Pulp Fiction is done. Like Pulp Fiction, you spend time on these characters and they converge, right? Yes. These do, but in a very different way. There's flashbacks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's it's just different. Um, And while I appreciate them, I think they could have been tighter. I think I would have liked to have seen, you know, we didn't see anything about Mr. Blue. Where the fuck Mr. Blue from? I don't think they I want to do know about Mis- Mr. Blue. So did you recognize Mr. Blue? Yes, I know Mr. Blue, fucking Longest Yard. I okay, know. Okay, sure. Did you also do yes. any research on the lo- on that guy? He's an actual con. I didn't know. <laughs> he did like everything, and he like got out. He's like, I'm gonna be an actor. And it's like, like fucking, yeah, go, fucking go, do it, go man. Don't get it sketchy. Yeah, but like, I. Well, there was yeah, the other trivia that... I would have that, liked uh, to have seen that, you the, know? The opening scene in the movie was added because Mr. Blue didn't have any dialogue in the rest of the movie, so they just did it to give him something to say and do. Um, yeah, this has... So I kind of wrote each one of them down. So getting the scene with uh, Vic, Vega, Mr. Mr. Blonde, and, and Eddie when Vic kind of comes back out of prison and he's talking to uh, to Eddie and... Um, Joe. And Joe. Like that's just, it's really long in the tooth. It's really it also, long. That's the scene in particular I could have... It also doesn't help that, of course, when you're dealing with a Tarantino movie, you are going to have a certain level of dialogue racist and, and dialogue and terminology that yeah. is aged poorly both in a racist and a homophobic and a sexual manner um and it's not just because it's the oldest movie because these things still persist yep. in, a, in a lot of his movies nowadays uh despite spike lee shouting from the rooftops 
But in that, it was just really forced and weird. Like, it felt like it was trying to be edgy for the sake of edgy. Yeah. And not even that it was edgy in 1992. I mean, 1992, fucking unfortunately, that's just how fucking people talked and, you know, what was in the culture. But that's one example. Mm -hmm. Um... Or uh, the then after Mr. Orange's reveal, you get the whole background as to him being a police informant and practicing a story with that fucking cop who just looks like he's permanently dressed in the Beat It video. Like, what the fuck was that guy's deal? What wasn't his deal? Like, is that guy also, like, undercover and just dresses? Like, why was that guy, yeah. who is essentially Mr. Blonde's boss, I'm assuming, dressed... Like he was trying out for the Warriors. Because he was. Not the Golden State ones. No, no. Like the gang warriors. Warriors come out to play. And that just, that's, that, that, that one maybe even bothered me more than the Eddie and Vic stuff. Because that, that was like 20 minutes. Like you get them in the diner. Then you get, uh, then you get uh, fucking Orange practicing his story. Then you get like him telling the story to everybody in the club. And you see... Him doing the in story. the dream sequence, essentially the yeah, shit he's doing making the story. up, doing the story with the cops in the bathroom. Then you get him going down. I was okay with the scene where like he kind of meets them in the car because then it's just a scene with guys being dudes because it's just him and Pink and uh, and Eddie and and White. Um, like I'm fine with that, but that whole little detour we take is just fucking wild to me yeah it just i i get wanting to get it but just if you tighten that shit up and this is already i think tarantino's shortest movie right this is an hour and 40 minutes i think so i i think you can get some other stuff out of the movie without having those things um another one is you figure the very very first big uh dialogue piece is Buscemi and Keitel once they get to the hideout and you know they're talking about the situation talking about getting set up they're talking about orange they're talking about just their careers and stuff that's another like that's like 10 minutes yeah and it's just them talking and it's good stuff I mean fucking it's Keitel and Buscemi oh yeah it helps like kind of it helps continue to escalate it lays everything out on the table for you but it's I mean, even Sorkin would look at that and go, God damn, put a fucking action beat in here or something. It's yeah. it's just a little much. It's, that's what made me think it's a little, it's stagey. Like, that's that's a fucking, that's mammoth cooking on stage. You know what I mean? Yeah. So th- those are my, those are my big ones besides getting into, uh, getting into performances, which I think we're basically close to. Do do have a couple little trivia things for you here. So I already mentioned uh, Mr. Blue, Skitchy. Uh, the cop in this movie, um, don't necessarily know him from anything else, but he is an acting coach that has, uh, had at least one famous student. Did you happen to see this at all? No. So the actor is Kirk Baltz, which is just a great name. Uh, he operates an acting school in Los Angeles. One of his students is Chris Jericho. <laughs> hey. So despite that, he won't be uh, he won't be LVP. <laughs> but he you should know. be. Um, also, I didn't realize 
he played Clayface in the live-action Birds of Prey show that lasted uh, not a lot of time. So there, there you go. Um, all right, well, are we going to get in? I mean, I think at this point we got to get into the yeah. performances of it all, right? Yep. Oh, wow, this is... Uh, what? Found the original Reservoir Dogs script. Mm-hmm. Like the original, original, like where uh, Quentin Tarantino plays Mr. Pink. Oh, yeah. Like, all that dialogue's for him, and then yeah. Mr. White's the one who doesn't want to tip. Yeah. Not Mr. Pink. So, that yeah. whole script's online. Nice. Yeah, I think most Tarantino scripts are going to be online, despite the fact that I keep buying physical copies of them. Well, why not? Why not? Uh, what do you want to start with? We could start with LVP. I mean, I think LVP is a, two, is a blatant two-horse race. Uh, I do want to give a special LVP shout-out to somebody that it can't be because he only has probably four or five lines and they're all voiceovers anyway, but I just have always hated Stephen Wright. Can I just say that? It, it's, it's, I mean, I get it. Sure. You have your lane. Go for it, man. But just not my cup of tea at all. So him in this movie doing the fucking DJ bits, I'm just like, hell no. I'm like, fuck off, dude. It's so inconsequential, Chris. I don't... Oh, no, that's what I'm saying. It's not him. I'm saying that's yeah. a, that's like, you know. I mean, it's between two. You know the two that I'm referring no, to? No, I don't. Because I don't like fuckface Chris Jericho's coach guy. Oh, the cop? Oh, I think I he's I don't fine. like the cop at all. Oh, I think he's fine. Marvin Nash. He had his fucking ear chopped off. How I the don't fuck else is he supposed fuck. to talk? I don't know. Mick Foley only has one and a half ears. That he talks is maybe fine. the stupidest argument no, I've ever heard not. in my entire Mc, life. Mick Foley, he's lost part, he's, like, he's lost a whole ear, hasn't he? Okay, so that happened several years after this, number one. Number two, it wasn't cut off of his body I, after he was beaten up, tortured, doused in fucking oh, gasoline. Are you sure about that? I'm positive, yeah, I'm kind of sure. What kind of match did he lose it in? A regular-ass fucking match. Well, that seems ridiculous. It's a fucking accident. That seems ridiculous. His head got stuck in the ropes, and he couldn't get out of it, so his ear got ripped off on the ropes. That seems ridiculous. And it could have been saved, but he was in fucking Germany, and the ref didn't understand what he was saying, and the ear didn't put on ice. And it wasn't the whole ear cut off. It was part of his ear ripped off. Okay. Well, Brock Lesnar has those big cauliflower As somebody ears. whose ear was just royally fucked for a week and a half, yeah, it kind of fucks with the way that you talk, and the way that you hear, and the way that you live your life. So fuck you. <laughs> He's off the hook. But also, he's nowhere near as bad as Mike do. Is one of your guys Chris Penn? No, actually, he's oh, on my good. MVP list. Oh, good, good, good. No, Chris Penn's awesome. I this. just feel like you don't normally like Chris Penn. No, and so, I don't like Chris uh, Penn in a lot of things because normally I'm like, oh, fuck, that's like me in an alternate universe. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, this, yeah. I love that this is just... The budget in this movie is obviously small, yeah, despite the fact his, that... he's wearing his fucking tracksuit. Yeah, Chris Penn... <laughs> Dude's like, you got something at home? He's like, yeah, I'll bring something. <laughs> he just got to wear his tracksuit the whole time. Yeah. No, Chris Penn's awesome in this, and I'm actually really sad that, like, I mean, you figure all throughout the late 80s, early 90s, like, Chris Penn was cooking. I mean, obviously, he's not his brother, but between this and True Romance, uh, Footloose, Rush Hour, a lot of things, like, his demons just got the best of him. I think he's a good actor. No, my two are. Obviously, it's Quentin Tarantino. Oh, well, yeah. Naturally. I, like, blocked out that he was in it. Nope, you can't, because... I mean, this... That whole opening... This is... 
probably... I, I didn't count the lines between this and fucking Pulp Fiction, but this is the most meaty part for him because he also has the dialogue and the naming scene later on. And that scene highlights how bad he is. But I think that was part of the reason why the opening was so jarring to me is, I mean, the opening up until you get to the tipping stuff, it's just all him. It's That's like, true. God, it's a lot. It's just a lot of Tarantino reciting his own bullshit. And I say it's his own bullshit because Madonna saw this movie and it was like, I really like the movie, but you're totally wrong. <laughs> you're very wrong. So not what it is about at all. Um, being like a virgin, being about fucking dick. Uh, he just has no fucking delivery anything and it's he's shocking. a great writer and director though yeah but he just he can't act he can't act we've been over this many times before i'm aware so he's one the only person i feel like who can top him because he's famously awful in this movie because he's also was famously awful off screen oh is lawrence tierney as joe yeah he's distracting as fuck because you can see in every scene he's in he's just an angry old man number one he has no idea what his lines are he has no idea what, what he's doing <laughs> number two he's obviously fucking on the sauce half the damn time number three he just doesn't seem like he wants to be there <laughs> Like, when you talk about, like, the, the suspension of disbelief that you had to have for, like, the amount of blood that, like, Tim Roth lost, everything, like, I have to suspend my disbelief that that guy would be able to come up with this heist plan and is, like, running an empire of, you know, uh, criminals and all of these, like, malfeasance, like... That's what I have to suspend my disbelief for. See, I don't necessarily have a disbelief for that. Oh, I do. You think that guy's going to be able to put together a team of strangers? Yeah, I, and think, I, think, nope. I think his son could. <laughs> I think his son well, might be the brains by the operation, sure, actually. Sure, No, he does seem like a gruff fucking criminal. Uh, Who didn't fucking throw in? What the fuck? <laughs> you know how much money she make? He's just such a fucking character. The stories. About, you know, him and Tarantino getting into a physical fight during this movie. Him showing up unable to perform and getting sent home. Him getting Tarant arrested in the middle of it. Like, Tarantino is basically just like, as soon as this movie's over and starts doing interviews for the movie, being like, yeah, fuck Lawrence Turney. <laughs> it's like, I don't know who, so let's, who of those two parts, if you look at Tarantino's filmography... Is there anybody you can think of that's been in a Tarantino movie that would fit for either one of those parts better? Oh, I thought you were going to say uh, that that would be worse. And I was going to say, Bloopity bite. <laughs> but uh, that was not your question. No, there's the, the only woman so, in this movie gets shot. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's no women. There's one woman in this movie. And I always forget it's the woman that technically Mr. Orange kills because that's who they're carjacking. That's the only woman in the entire movie. Yeah, yeah. but you can't say that. You can't say that they gave them poor. I don't know if it's better to not have women like in the movie or have a really poorly, terribly written woman yeah. in the movie. You know what I mean? Like sure. it's. 
it's kind of a toss up. Um, it is, and I think what settles it is I was desperately missing feet in this movie. So <laughs> let's go. Gross. <laughs> uh, um, no, I'm kidding. I hate feet. Um, who could have done it better? I think that. Well, obviously, you know, I missed I missed uh, Samuel L. Jackson in the movie, but I don't know if he would have fit for either one Different of the roles. Different vibe for both. Yep. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, he didn't work with like Leonardo DiCaprio. No, I mean, DiCaprio later. was like, growing pains at this time. Well, yeah, I know. The two that kind of stand out to me from like, you figure I'm just going based off of Pulp Fiction and sure. Jackie Brown. Bruce immediately. Willis. I think. Too big. I think Eric Stoltz would have been a great Mr. Oh, Brown. Eric Stoltz would have been Stoltz really good. Stoltz would have been really, really good doing that. Or Michael J. Fox. I mean. <laughs> Stop doing that to Eric Stoltz. <laughs> Give the man a break. Uh, fuck him. So it would be one, but for Joe, I really don't have anybody which is why I'm I kind of lean towards Tarantino being the answer which is funny because I mean this movie he's not the least valuable player in this movie this this is his movie but we don't judge it based off of that we judge it based off of acting but Tierney almost is so uniquely himself in this movie that it just kind of fits you know what I mean like sure he's He's so unanimously loony, transparently at the same time, mm-hmm. that I don't know else who who you could even. I mean, Christopher Walken would have been great. Okay, yeah, that's actually. Yeah, Christopher great. Walken would have been great as Joe. Give me how Christopher Walken would have been as Joe. Who, who didn't put in? I mean, I who? I. Yeah, I'm in. That's all I got. Uh, I think that's perfect. But that that would be like the only... God, it's so tough between the two. It, it is. And it, there's a big difference, right? Like Tarantino is this hotshot fucking, you know, director, not an actor. And Lawrence Tierney, you know, was a mobster tough guy film icon for 50 years. But also, I'm just going to read, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to read the off-screen, holy shit, this is long. I'm going to read the off-screen trouble section of his Wikipedia. Okay. okay. Tyranny's numerous arrests for being drunk and disorderly in jail terms for assault on civilians and lawmen alike took a toll on his career. He was an admitted alcoholic who tried to go sober in 1982 after having a mild stroke, once observing during a 1987 interview that he, quote, threw away about seven careers through drink. Between 1944 and 1951, Tierney was arrested over 12 times in Los Angeles for brawling, frequently for drunkenness, which included ripping a public telephone off a wall in a bar, hitting a waiter in the face with a sugar bowl for refusing to serve him any more drinks, and attempting to choke a taxi driver. He was jailed for three months for brawling in May 47, and again in June 49, drunkenness in January 49, and October 50. His legal troubles included a 90-day jail sentence, which he served from August to October 51 for breaking a New York college student's jaw during another ballroom brawl. Oh, my God. He served 66 days in the city jail in Chicago, Illinois, from March to May 52 for drunken disorderly charges. In October 51, he was sent to a mental hospital in Chicago after being found disheveled in a church. In New York City, he was arrested for assault and battery of a barroom pianist in August 53, and again in October 58 for resisting arrest and assaulting two police officers in another barroom brawl. 
At the time of his October 58 arrest outside a Manhattan bar, New York Times reported that he'd been arrested six times in California and five in New York City on similar charges. Oh, wow. That's the second paragraph. That's insane. In January 73, he was stabbed in a bar fight on the west side of Manhattan. Two years later, Tierney was questioned by New York City police in connection with the apparent suicide of a 24-year-old woman who had jumped from the window of her high-rise apartment. Tierney told police, quote, I had just gotten there and she just went out the window. <laughs> All right, for, before I forget, Tarantino is the LVP of this movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm not going to disparage this poor man at the, the grave. He never was arrested or charged with a woman, young woman's death. The apparent suicide closely resembles the death of Rosa, played by Aileen Roberts in the 51 film The Hoodlum. Tierney's Vincent Lubick, the hoodlum of the title, is suspected of driving Rosa into throwing herself off a roof shortly after talking to Lubick. In January 91, during the filming of Rosa of Our Dogs, Tierney shot at his nephew in a drunken rage yep. at his Hollywood apartment and was arrested and jailed. He was released for a day from the... He was released for a day from the jail to continue filming, as recounted by Tarantino in an interview. As a result, Tarantino never worked with or hired Tierney to act in his films, which is fine. He was dead. Oh, God, he lived another 10 years. <laughs> How'd this guy die from the moan? That's not fair. Like, this guy should get blown up to die. <laughs> That's not fair. Like, this guy should go out like a badass. Uh, he never married. Go figure. <laughs> what a surprise. So, yeah, so we'll go with Tarantino as the LVP yeah. for... I mean, a, a guy of this magnitude and stature is just—he's he, like I said, he's a unicorn. Like you, you can't, you can't bemoan him. Uh, so that will make Tarantino a multi-time LVP on the podcast. Only his second one. He's gotten off light in some other ones. I feel like okay, um, but he does join the list. I think he could be a—he could be our first three-time candidate at some point. We still mm. only have. Um, Nobody has more than two. We only have people that have three. So at some point, we'll have to uh, see what happens there. But um, yeah, Tarantino, the LVP of the movie from an acting perspective. That's if, in case you're listening for the first time, that's mm-hmm. how, we ba- how we judge it, how we base it. And that's what we're going with. MVP. I have a list. I mean, I, it's, it's really... It's so hard. It's really it's hard It's really difficult. Pick. There's just such... Have, so many great performances. I have three main ones. Chris Penn was my number four. I want to say, who I don't have on my list, and I don't know if this is a controversial opinion or not, I don't have Tim Roth on my list. between Really? Them. I don't. I have Tim Roth on my list. I think he's my number, he's either my number two or my number three. But I have Tim Roth on my list. I think he's very good. He's so great in this, just the agony of him like writhing and just, I think it's uh, a little much. I, don't. I think it's I think it's, it's too have, much. So tell me. I tell me how you're gonna stomach, react how you, when you get shot in the stomach. It ties into what I was saying earlier. I my suspension of disbelief is hard to make that jump. That's fine. That's and fine. And his performance is part of that. When you get shot in the stomach, I'm gonna play this podcast. <laughs> when you get for shot you. in the stomach, I'm gonna fucking call the cops on you and you're gonna lower the attorney. I just got here and he shot in the stomach. I don't know what to tell you. That's what I'm gonna tell him. Just like yeah. what Lawrence Tierney did. Uh-huh. They, I got here, jumped out the window. I got here, he was shot in the stomach. <laughs> he was just shot in the stomach. He was just shot in the stomach. I don't know what happened. So he he's not mine. Who is your number one? Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel is also my number he's one. He's my number one. Um he just the essence of yep. cool and just like when he's remaining calm and he's trying to calm down orange is just so great. Steve Buscemi also Buscemi's a fantastic a, in this movie. 1B 
What a fucking epic little worm. What a worm. But, and both of them have like these like monologues or like these like soliloquies and they just both knock them out of the park. But what sealed it for me was the one that with Kaitel when he's like yelling at him, um, you know, it's my fault. Like I'm going to take yeah. care of him. Like just like that emotion and the heightening of that. The the stretch the stretch towards the end of that conversation with Pink into the altercation and conversation when Blonde gets in there yes that that's what sealed it for me is he masters the sensibilities of this conflicted man (coughs) who's who's not a great person but But, still is close but he's still a great person kind of you know like. No, he's not. No, he's a terrible uh, yeah. person, but he's still like He's as close to a protagonist as we kind of sure. have up till the up till the reveal of Orange in that moment. Um but he also Matt, like honestly besides Samuel L. Jackson and Chris, like I would probably put Kaitel on my Mount Rushmore of people that get Tarantino's writing in terms of performing it. Like I think that's so true. There are still moments where it's hard with like Leo and Brad Pitt because they're such big fucking stars that when you see them in a role, I mean, you see Cliff Booth and you see Rick Dalton, but you still see fucking slivers of, you know, Leo and Brad. Yeah. But I think it's easier for character actors like Kaitel and Christoph Waltz. You can even argue Samuel L. Jackson, even though Samuel L. Jackson is fucking Samuel L. Jackson, the movie star. Um, they are able to take those words and create characters and the the person that's delivering them erodes so quickly and so easily. And Kaitel is on that list for me of just yeah. nailing it every time he gets Tarantino's words to say. So, yeah, he was my number one. Bashemi was my number two. Madsen was my number three. Madsen's was a tough one because... See, I would put Tim Roth over Madsen. You're probably right. I know I'm right. Because Madsen has this, like, too whispery... Sure. Like, he doesn't know how to sure. kind of control his psychosis in yeah. any way. That's you know who not, did it like, better? John Travolta. Mm, yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah. obviously, because I think that's the intent because of... Obvi- um, yes, yes, that's the intent, but it wasn't the intent when this was made. You know what I mean? Sure. So, So, when you think about it... John Travolta, they're like, oh, you're playing Vincent Vega. Your brother was Vic Vega. It was this character. So John Travolta is trying to match that and I does it better. I don't think he's match. I don't. No, no, I think, not I think match it, it. He's trying to, you know. I think he's trying to evoke. You have to evoke that brother. Like you have to say, oh yeah, that they're brothers. They're brothers. You you have to evoke that, right? And I think he does just such a better job don't of being don't, the Vega that you don't remember. Don't fucking Freddie chin me. You know how, you, how dare you? Um, I, I get what you're saying. And I, when I wrote him on my list, I was like, it's not going to be him. It's not him. It's not but him. he's so fucking perfect in... He's a fucking, fucking crazy stuck person. Fucking stuck in the middle of you. He's a fucking crazy person. Scene that like, I had to put him on the list because I'm like... Nobody else could pull that scene off, I feel like, of being so goddamn crazy and charismatic while being mysterious and odd. Like, it's it's really a 
wild job. But yeah, it, it, it is Harvey Keitel. Not in a landslide, because I do think Buscemi, we barely oh, yeah, talked Buscemi, about Buscemi. Buscemi. It's, it is preposterous to think that Quentin Tarantino wanted to do that part. <laughs> it's not because I can <sighs> see and I can feel it, I can hear him, because he is just like a worm. But, like, Buscemi is able to stand out by being so... Like normal and odd. Yeah, he has like the typical like neuroses that we encounter every day. Yeah, like the paranoid, like all that stuff. Sure. But I just, it just it it also is so odd to me. Like that that's Steve Buscemi. You know what I mean? Like, well, you figure this is early. In I terms know, of- but then you know. When you talk about, oh, what roles are, is Steve Buscemi for? Reservoir Dogs shouldn't be on that list. You know what I mean? Like, I, I disagree with that. I think, I think he, I mean, Fargo proves he's good at this incredibly flawed criminal. Sure. Who, you know, you really doubt if he's any good. I mean, this, it's night and day compared to Fargo because... He quote unquote gets away, even though as soon as he's in that room with the police coming up, you know he's fucked, he's dead. Oh yeah. Um, but he's the one that you know hides away from the standoff. He's the one that got away and had the fucking stash. Um, again, shout out to uh, Tarantino for nailing in a movie once again the MacGuffin. Uh, obviously, Pulp Fiction being what's in the case, but in this, like the diamonds and the heist itself. Right. You never see the heist because well, they didn't have any fucking money. Um, and sure. like literally when like they're running away and like they're pulling people up, you know, carjacking or doing things on the street, they're just having to do it in between fucking lights sure. <laughs> on the street. But seeing Buscemi like escape and run away in that moment, he's such a great physical performer as well because he is so unique. In his facial expression and his like gangliness and his kind of like elasticity almost, um, that's really hard not to go with him. And that's how good Kaitel is. Yeah. In every interaction he has with Orange in the car, in helping him on that little ramp, trying to stay alive, and even even when he's, I think he brings up the breast and tyranny and like his scene. We didn't talk about his introductory scene. Oh yeah. Earlier on, like. That's just a good character-building scene. It is. When you see him kind of becoming charmed with Orange as we're recounting Orange's, you know, assimilation into this group, you just see from his body language and his facial expressions, like, he likes this kid, you know? it. You see a human being there, and that's important for us to latch onto because, I mean, he just killed several cops, and he's... Uh, the most tragic figure in this story yeah. from uh, the perspective of he's the one that's wrong <laughs> and he's going to suffer the most out of it. Yeah. You know? So yeah, so it, it's Kaitel. I'm glad we were in locks up there because I thought we were going to have a bit of a debate. And I don't mean to disparage Tim Roth here. I just think that... I think you're crazy. I mean, we, we both agree he wasn't better than Harvey Kaitel. No, no. He wasn't better than Harvey Kaitel, think, but it, it, was close, just... it was close for me. I think he does such a great job. He's a big step down from Buscemi, even, to me. 
I don't know. I, I and, and again, I chalk a lot of that up to that whole 15, 20 minute prep scene where he's hanging out with fucking... Uh, I, I, I've ran out of similarities to that weird cop character and uh, other uh, pop culture figures, so... Harvey Gattel, MVP, Quentin Tarantino, OVP. It is also appropriate that Harvey Gattel is the reason this movie got made, because he yeah. got the script and was like, I'll give you a million and a half bucks, and Tarantino yeah. was like, sweet. And then look, change the tra- trajectory of filmmaking, movies of both of their careers, really. Absolutely. You know, uh, it's great. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh so to me, if I'm doing a full blown Tarantino ranking, what do we say? There's ten, right? If we're splitting up, let's do it again. So Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill One and Two, Bastard, Django, Hateful, uh, we'll count Death Proof, I guess, and uh, Once Upon a Time. So that'd be ten with Death Proof. Uh, nine, uh, ten, nine. This would be eight for me. Really? It'd be either seven or... Depends on the day you catch me with uh, with uh, Kill Bill Volume 2, but probably is number eight for me. Hmm. That's interesting. Do, do you have a number off the top of your head? N- no, I, uh, I don't, but... Um, let me see. One, two, three, four... Like once you start, this will probably be fifth. Okay. Um, not a big fan of the Kill Bill movies, but I also haven't seen all of the Kill Bill movies. Have you seen Kill Bill Volume Two? Oh, well, I've I've seen parts of both. Oh, you've never seen all of Kill Bill One either. Oh, wow. no, 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 no. Um, interesting. And I haven't seen Jackie Brown either. But yeah, I think I. It'd be seven. I forgot about Jackie Brown. Ten yes. would be Death Proof, nine would be Hateful Eight, eight would be Jackie Brown, this would be seven. Yeah, see, I'd put yeah. this above the Kill Bills. And I've only seen Jackie me. Brown, I think, once. Yeah, so I'd put this above Kill Bills for me, so this would be like fifth. Only because okay. you. But it's fifth on a list of Pulp Fiction. Glorious Bastards. And Glorious Bastards, Django Unchained, yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's still like getting an A. <laughs> like, yeah. you know what I mean? It's so. like winning the MVP on the dream. It's like, you know, getting fifth. Best player on the dream team. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you exactly. just find Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley and Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Okay, fine. Right, right, exactly. So, you know. Um, all right, so uh, score time. You would score it first, I believe, because I was the one that nominated it back in the day. So what um, do you think I, dogs? Um, I think, you know, we. I've talked about other movies I like more than this one from... Quentin Tarantino in particular, um, but I still think it's a good movie. I know you're not apparently as big of a fan of it. No, um, that's... but I do also like. I just like the world building. Like there's like a big Kahuna Burger cup in there, and like you don't even know about it. Yeah, you know until like you get to it. Um, and I just I think it's just still such a great movie. I really did enjoy it. Um, and I think the ensemble is just fantastic. I'm going to give this movie an eight and a half. I was torn between two scores um, throughout. There's a lot of extra meat on this bone when I think it could be leaner 
and a little bit healthier, if I could really get deep into this analogy. Uh, but there's no denying just how important this movie is, not just to Tarantino, but just film in general. Like, this set off the next 30 years. I mean, this has been voted the greatest independent film of all time, just based off of what they were able to accomplish and what it set the course to be. Yeah, going uh, it, it changed so yeah. many things. So because of that, I'm going to give it the half point button from what my original score was going to be, and I will also give it an eight and a half. So it'll settle at eight and a half instead of an eight. The style and the script and the story and the performances overcome to me a lot of issues that thankfully Tarantino was able to quell pretty soon after this. So an eight and a half for Reservoir Dogs is the story we're sticking with. So I love it. Next week we will finish the Fast Saga by Hooker Crook, Fatal Furious, Hobbs and Shaw, F9, we'll be donezo, and then... What about uh, F10? Fast FX. X will probably take place either by the end of the year or we will kick off January. But I'm not going to remember all this shit that I barely remember what happened in the first six movies, seven movies, and now to watch these. I almost feel like that's what they're aiming for. Uh, no, Chris, you can't say that when we get the last movie we watched a nine. Right, I hate to tell you, I think that's going to be the best we're going to get. <laughs> okay, but you can't say they're trying to make us forget. Uh, it's a ridiculous point. Then after that, we're going to get into Little Women. Then we're going to get into whatever we draw next week. Because we got a random movie. And then we're killing time before October and Halloween season. Birdemic 2 and 3. God damn it. Psycho. And we're each going to get to pick a movie to watch uh, for the Halloween season there. So be on the lookout for an exciting few weeks. Uh, that hopefully will be exciting for us because life will have settled down somewhat. Doubtful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Married Movies. Did I say next week's episode of Married Movies? Thank you for listening to next week's episode of Married Movies. I'm just assuming you'll be there. Um, so will we. But if you like this week's episode, uh, check out our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Rate, review, and subscribe while you're at it. Patreon.com slash Audio for bonus content. Facebook.com slash Married Movies at Mary W Movies on Twitter. MarriedMovies at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the show. For me, at your host, Malt38 on Instagram. For you. At Jam with your Sam. And that will be it. What a shout out to uh, Rock of Spontaneous Comedy for our blatant uh, Reservoir Dogs poster parody many years ago of many different varieties. Both the the, the solid color ties invoking the, the misters. Yeah. And you were Mr. Green. He wasn't even here. The other job's got a Mr. Purple. <laughs> that was your Lawrence Tierney. Um, the, other, the, other, the other gig, we have a Mr. Purple. I, I see. I th- it would have been just as it would, enjoyable. It would have been great. Um, but I also like how, like, there's also a couple shots from, like, our wedding of y'all walking through the parking lot just... Hmm. Trying mm-hmm. to exude that cool with the sunglasses. And Every the suits. group of guys has tried to do this movie since it came out. Yeah, yeah. How's that worked and out? And we're for probably you? In the, we're probably in the top five percent who did all right with it. 
The other ninety five percent just look like fucking dudes in ill fitting suits. <laughs> Oh, you're the most ridiculous. That would be the Zucker Brothers, like, airplane-style parody of Tarantino movies. A bunch of dudes in ill-fitting suits. (laughs) Talking about fucking burgers and music. (laughs) Fucking hate you. For Mullet. This is Mullet. We'll catch you next time on our... What? Hey, K-Billy. We'll catch you next time on Married with Movies. Now here's a song from... Question mark in the Mysterians. Yeah, that, that's a good sign-off. Fucking sign-off of the show correctly. For Mullet. This is Mullet. Signing out for this week's episode of Married with Movies. We'll catch you next time on our couch. Slash the movie. I don't know why that was so difficult for me to get through. <laughs> catch I... you next time on the Hanglows, sweet daddy-os. <laughs> fuck's wrong with you? I don't even know what I'm doing. You don't even have balls to hurt. What? My balls hurt, and I still rock that. You can't even do the same line you've done 400 some odd times. No, I didn't do it all those times. You've done it at least 400 times. No, time. I don't think that's true. Is she forced like, you always host them, you host them, I wouldn't do it. Well, because you were hosting like three other podcasts. Yeah. I'm tired of listening to your fucking voice. Well, I say what I feel. <laughs> Thank you for playing Arcade Audio. Play more at arcadeaudio.net.